separate out the worry from the thinking, right? So remember, fear plus uncertainty equals anxiety. Well, uncertainty also can move us into a growth mindset. So when, when there's a lot of uncertainty and we're really feeling really stressed out because of our finances, in those moments when we're really worrying, worrying, worrying about the finances, if folks can just take a deep breath, step back and ask themselves, is this worrying helping me right now? Okay, because worry makes our thinking brain go offline. Podcast world, it's Josh Trent. You've made it to wellness and wisdom. If it's your first time, welcome. This is the place where you get all you need to live your life well. If you've been with us for almost eight years now, you know that every single episode is based around you being more free, having more peace, mastering this wellness pentagon that you and I, that we all signed up for to do here on planet earth. And that is nourish ourselves to the best of our ability, to the highest level of our consciousness in mental, physical, emotional, spiritual, and financial wellness. This episode is a very, very special drop from the one and only Dr. Judd Brewer. Now, if you've struggled with anxiety or depression, or really you just want to get rid of the monkey mind, you know those thoughts that tend to ruminate when we're stressed or when we're avoiding something? Do you ever have like a procrastination bear that jumps out of your closet at night and scares you? I've been there. This episode goes deep into the neuroscience, the physiology, and also the psychology, the understanding of the somatic mind-body connection as to why do we do what we do? And when we do something that we don't like, how do we change it? What is the science and what are the practical steps that allow us to actually take control of our mind and be its master instead of the other way around? This is a really special replay. It's one of my favorite episodes. I know you're going to love this episode with Dr. Judd Brewer. Make sure you head over to the show notes page at joshtrend.com forward slash 388 so you can get all the details on how to unwind your anxiety and how this new science shows us we can change old ways of being a lot easier than we thought. Let's tune in with Dr. Judd Brewer. Judd Brewer, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I was telling you and I was telling myself actually my dream last night. Um, I sometimes dream about how shows are going to go. And I thought about this title, Unwinding Anxiety. It's like even on the cover of your new book. And I think for myself and many of us, we feel in our lives, our brain literally gets tied in knots. It feels mm -hmm. like no matter how hard we tug, no matter how hard, quote, we try to change, um, the knot doesn't get untied unless we have the intelligence and, and honestly, the connection to something outside of ourselves. Uh, a divine power, divine force. So just so excited to bring you on the show again for the second time. We had literally tens of thousands of people comment and watch our last episode. So this is the new science, Judd. Uh, the new science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind. Is it really new or is it just science that you've now refound? Is that the truth that it's brand new or is it has it always been there kind of waiting in the wings for you to discover? Yeah, I'd like to say I'm the genius that came up with something new. But the more I do research, the more I realize we're just uncovering stuff that's been around for a long time. So this actually, there's a some good, there was a nugget of this work that came from the 1980s, where somebody had suggested that worry could be reinforced, as similarly to other, you know, negatively reinforced behaviors, kind of like habits. And uh, I've been doing a lot of research on mindfulness, which helps people specifically target that aspect of work. So I, you know, I just kind of brought the threads together where, you know, in medical school, I'd learned to give people medications for anxiety. I yeah. uh, hadn't really learned anything about, you know, and there were some things like cognitive therapy to, that, you know, hadn't worked particularly well for me, even though I got formal training in that to help my patients with that, because it was, it's more about like thinking yourself out of anxiety and you know the thinking part of our brain tends to go off on when we're stressed. So this was kind of bringing having this aha moment actually where I realized that the work I was doing with my patients with addictions could actually relate and apply to the work I was doing with my patients with anxiety. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some of the folks using our, eat, we have this eat right now app that helps people with, you know, overeating, for example. And they were saying, Hey, you know, I feel like anxiety drives my eating. Can you actually develop an app to help me with my anxiety? And I was like, well, I'm going to, I'm a psychiatrist, but I haven't really studied this. And that's when I looked into the literature and I said, Whoa, it's, you know, there's some really good theory here 
but we had to do the research to prove that it was actually true. And, you know, we can get into this later, but we got some whopping results with our clinical trials. Blew my mind away whopping. What was one of the biggest things that blew your mind? Because I think, you know, with how many people have had their minds blown by you, you've been in the research, both academic and also clinical for quite some time now, I think almost two decades. Yes. Yeah, it's been a long time uh, and it's been a great journey. I'd have to say, you know, just people help. What blew my mind was that people don't see anxiety as a habit. You know, I kind of walk around the world with like, you know, we all have all these habits, you know, glasses on. Those are my my uh, subjective bias glasses. But and so I'd been kind of approaching some of the work with my patients that way, you know, just kind of seeing that. But I hadn't really explicitly said, hey, did you think about this as being negatively reinforced? So, for example, you know, I've, I've had I wrote a, about a patient in my book who, you know, came in, was diagnosed, you know, he was referred to me for anxiety. And the first thing I did with him was map out his how his panic disorder could be driven basically by habitual avoidance. He was avoiding driving on the highway, you know, and for him and a bunch of my other patients, just helping them see anxiety and worry in particular as a habit was a big, that was a big aha for them. And I, and when it works in my clinic in five minutes, then I know that's something to research, (laughs) you know, like let's look into this. So that's when we developed a whole program to study it. And, you know, long story short, we did a study with anxious physicians. We got a 57% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores. So that was the other big aha for me was like, these are, these are major numbers here, just to give you a leveling for medications. So when I prescribe a medication, the gold standard medication for anxiety, there's this number called number needed to treat, meaning you need to treat X number of people before one person benefits. So the number needed to treat for anxiety is 5.15. You know, you've got to treat about five people for one person to benefit. We did a randomized controlled trial of this unwinding anxiety app, which is basically, you know, this delivering this, this uh, treatment in a um, helping people understand their habit loops and get through them. And we can get into that into detail, but we got a 67% reduction in anxiety in these clinically validated anxiety scores. And the number needed to treat in that study was 1.6. Wow. So that was, you know, like what lottery do you want to play? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, want to pause, I want to pause you right there because it was yeah. fascinating. You said it was a clinically validated anxiety score. So it's not mm-hmm. like anecdotal because I think sometimes um, if you look at the epigenetics or the generational trauma, the learned behaviors, sometimes these things, um, people put on a sweater and they think it's actually theirs when it comes to anxiety mm-hmm. or depression. But you're talking about a clinically validated score, which seems to be much, much different than something that might be, quote, anecdotally perceived to be there. So what does that actually mean when something's clinically validated to be uh, an anxiety-based thing? Yeah. So my lab at Brown University, you know, we get NIH-funded grants to actually do careful clinical randomized controlled trials where we can uh, bring people in who have anxiety, who want to get better. We don't tell them what treatment they're getting, so they're not biased. We can blind our entire research staff, so they're not biased. I stay far away from the actual performing of the study, so I don't add any bias to it. And we can deliver treatment through an app. So there's a, a standard delivery of what everybody's getting. So everybody, we know what everybody got if we see a result that's either positive or negative. So when we randomize people, we can, we randomize in this study, we randomize them to get their usual, you know, clinical care, which is typically what happens. You know, you go to your doctor and they say, try this. So it's, you know, usual clinical care or their usual clinical care plus this unwinding anxiety app. And then we can study them over months using clinically validated tools and blind ourselves to the results to not even know, you know, when we analyze the results, we don't know what group A versus group B is. And, and then we do this unblinding process. And then we can see, oh, it was the active group or, oh, that active group didn't do anything. So when I mean clinically validated, we do everything from using the clinically validated tools to the, you know, diagnoses, you know, we diagnose people at the beginning, we do all the, and we blind ourselves, we do all of this stuff to try to be as unbiased as possible. Because even though I'm I'm biased, I think that mindfulness is helpful. I only think that it's helpful because I see the evidence behind it. I, you know, anecdotally, I see it in my clinic, but even more substantially, and it's this isn't to discount any one of my clinic patients' experiences. Like this is their experience; they're they're seeing results. 
But seeing this on a population level where it isn't just one or two of my patients, it's people that are randomly assigned to this group that are doing so much better. That's, that's what I mean by clinical validation. This podcast is brought to you by our trusted friends at Organifi, the creators of the Organifi Gold, my number one turmeric lemon balm and superfood adaptogen bombshell that, trust me, will make you sleep like a baby. I know this because I use it on the regular. Not only is this one of my top sleep supplements I use personally, but also it helps my nervous system and my stomach calm down at the end of the day in the evenings, especially if I've had a stressful day. I know you have those too because you're human. (laughs) And because we're human, the best thing to do is take loving care of the human body, starting with quality sleep, not just quantity. This is going to allow you to have the highest quality of life possible. So if you've been struggling with sleep, give this superfood adaptogen powder, the Organifi Gold, a test drive for a special deal over at wellnessforce.com forward slash Organifi. O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I, wellnessforce.com forward slash Organifi. Pick up a 30-day supply, give it a test drive. If you don't like it, you can send it back, but no one's ever done that, (laughs) as far as I've heard. 20% off is the biggest discount you'll find over the entire internet. We're grandfathered in. These savings are for you. Head over to wellnessforce.com forward slash Organifi and use the code wellnessforce. Share this with your friends, your family, and anyone who wants to drink the gold and sleep well. It's fascinating. I'm curious what even ties the knot in the first place. The cover of the book, we're talking about unwinding anxiety. Yeah. So what 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 really is the source, Judd? Like what ties the knot? What is the creation source of the anxiety? We've heard depression is a focus on the past, anxiety is a focus on the future, but the actual yeah. knot itself, like where does that come from for a mm-hmm. knot to be even tied? A great, probably very existential question that we could get into a, a deep dive there. Well, that was one of my questions was the metaphysical yeah. and physiological connections of addiction. So, yeah, yeah. Yes. So we we can link that back into what what's actually the cause of this. So the cause is actually a survival mechanism. Our brains, which is to help us remember where food is and how to avoid danger. Okay, so we learn how to. And this, all addictions are also formed this way. So. Uh, imagine our ancient ancestors out on the savanna and when they are foraging for food, their brains have to have this mechanism to know when to take a memory snapshot, you know, lay down a memory, right? So it's not like I'm taking, I'm taking pictures of a bunch of bland savanna. That's not a very good photo album (laughs) for your brain. You go out on the savanna and suddenly you find some food. There's the trigger. You eat the food, there's the behavior, and then your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain. That's the reward that says, okay, take a picture, as in remember what you ate and where you found it, okay? So our brains are set up because our brains have basically a limited capacity um, you know, memory stick for, for their computers or for their, for their foot, photography, so to speak, for their cameras. Same thing for danger. You, know, to, you, you go out in the savannah. You see the saber-toothed tiger, you you lay down that memory that says, oh, saber-toothed tigers in that part of the savannah don't go there, okay? So this is where anxiety gets set up. That mechanism evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slugs. So very, very well-documented, well-researched, well-conserved process. In humans, it's still at play in modern day, okay? And fear-based learning is still a survival mechanism. So if we step out into the street, there's the trigger, we uh, see a bus coming at us and we jump back onto the safety of the sidewalk, there's the behavior, then you know, this dopamine signal goes to our brain in a fear response that says, hey, look both ways before crossing the street next time. So we learn, we learn yeah. from that, okay? So that's still uh, at play, especially, <laughs> and everybody needs to remember these weapons of mass distraction, you know, our phones are actually right. anti-survival mechanisms in that way, you know, because we're not looking both ways before crossing the street anymore. Especially uh, Instagram. In- Instagram, I would say, is the most powerful harvester of human yeah. attention. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. I'm totally with you there. So there, fear-based learning, that negative reinforcement, as in, you know, look both ways so you don't get killed, is still at play. But our brains have evolved on top of this, this thinking and planning part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, okay? And that prefrontal cortex helps, helps us take past experiences and extrapolate into the future and say, well, this happened, you know, 100 times last time, it's likely to happen the same way next time, Okay. When we don't 
Well, and we the more times it's happened, the more certainty we have that it's going to happen that way in the future. When we don't have certainty, when there is uncertainty in the situation, our brain is still trying to project into the future, but it starts spinning out all of these different scenarios. What if this? What if that? What if this? What if that? And so you can think of fear plus uncertainty equaling anxiety. Sounds like the pandemic. <laughs> uh, yeah, mean, well, really, the pandemic's really brought it brought it, it out in all of us. It, it sounds Absolutely. like the the knot has been tied even tighter, or maybe even new knots have been created. I love this so much. In, in prep for our interview, I was looking at specifically chapter six: why your previous anti anxiety or anti habit strategies failed. This is this is key. Mm -hmm. Remember, our old brain is set up to help us survive. In addition to reward based learning, it has another trick up its sleeve. It takes what it learns and moves the learning into quote muscle memory as soon as it can. In other words, our brains are set up to form habits so we can free up brain space to learn new things. Do we have limited random access memory? Is that what this is about? Is it a heuristic? Is it a shortcut? Is it is it the brain being lazy? Is it survival based? There's a lot there. Yeah, it's it's not the brain being lazy. I've never seen a brain, you know, we might think in our consciousness that we are lazy people or being lazy in a moment, but our brain is never lazy. <laughs> it's always doing stuff. And one thing that, you know, this goes back to habits and addictions. One thing our brain has set up is basically using that same process to learn a bunch of different ways to do things, right? And part of that process is it lays down habits so that we don't have to relearn those behaviors every day. So imagine waking up in the morning, not knowing how to stand up, put on your clothes, walk, talk, make breakfast, whatever, you know, we'd be exhausted before we even knew how to make breakfast, if we had to relearn everything every day. So there's a learning that gets set up in habit memory so that, our, and our brain basically sets up this hierarchy of reward values as part of that. So we can say, you know, if we're given a choice between two things, let's say for breakfast, you know, we're looking at, or, or let's say at dinner, here's a good example. Cause a lot of folks, um, you know, they try to hold off on dessert until after dinner. Right. So if, if we present, if we presented our kids with broccoli and cake at dinner, what would they eat? <laughs> right? Probably the cake. They'd eat, they'd eat the cake because they've associated, you know, fun presents, ice cream parties, all the times they've gone to a birthday party, they've learned to associate cake with a certain reward value. So it gets a higher reward value than broccoli because broccoli is typically not served at birthday parties. <laughs> you know, imagine serving broccoli with candles. <laughs> Unless it's like a hardcore paleo family, or maybe you're raised by Tony Robbins or or something. Right, uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so those habits get set down so that we don't have to relearn things. It's a it's an efficiency mechanism in our brain. The only problem is that those habits get set up and if we don't actually keep checking to see if that same behavior is still rewarding, we're going to keep doing it without paying attention. And when you say rewarding, you just mean dopamine serotonin reward or something else. There, it's probably more complex than that. So the dopamine is there certainly to help us establish a change in reward value. So for example, um, the dopamine fires until, you know, until it, we, it knows that our brain knows that, okay, we remember where the food is or how rewarding it is. But then, and sometimes, yeah, I guess there can still be a little bit of a dopamine hit when, with sugar, for example, and refined carbohydrates. So that still can happen, but it tends to happen more when there's a deviation from what we expect. So if we're expecting the cake to taste really good, let's say it's a you know chocolate cake that looks exactly like one that we've had before, but whoever made it actually put a ton of salt in instead of sugar. Mm. And we eat the we eat that cake and we go, <laughs> you know, there's a technical term for that called negative prediction error. Okay. And that negative prediction error means our brain is predicting that the cake is going to taste, you know, yummy. And then we actually taste it and it tastes not yummy. There's that negative prediction where it's predicted this and it's got a negative, it's not getting what it predicted. That negative prediction actually updates the reward value of the cake. And so next time we are a little more skeptical, we're like, is this really a good mm. cake or not? In question, if you, if someone experiences so many of those situations, like you're talking about, 
um, either because they're projecting maybe an addictive lifestyle onto it or mm -hmm. they've never practiced delayed gratification. How important is it? You know, we uh, we talk about breath work and cold therapy and biohacking on the show quite a bit, you know, in our, our previous episode with Dave Asprey. It's like we all know the benefits of the hormesis and the eustress. We understand it's, it's clinical, it's physiological benefits. But from your perspective and even in writing this book, how does that play out in helping people unwind anxiety when we look at specific delayed gratification? Yes, I think it's really hard to delay gratification. If you look at anybody that's tried to follow a calorie-based diet program, they will probably agree with that and say, that's pretty hard, you yeah. know, to to think two years into the future and, you know, that I've lost, you know, I, I project that I will have lost a hundred pounds. Okay. So, and I, I think the key here is really helping us find what is driving those behaviors and helping us pay attention to those behaviors so we can update the reward value now so that we don't have to practice delayed gratification. We can practice instant gratification in two ways. One is letting go of the old habits and one is leaning into the new ones. I'll give you a concrete example. So this that I mentioned who was referred to my clinic for anxiety, when I sent him home to map out his habit loops around panic, okay, so you drive on the highway, he'd get this thought, oh no, I'm in a speeding bullet, I'm gonna get in a crash. Uh, his avoidance behavior was to not drive on the highway. And then the reward was he did, he could avoid those negative thoughts. Okay. So I sent him home and, oh, and by the way, this guy was 180 pounds overweight. Wow. I sent him home to map out his habit loops. He comes, comes back two weeks later for his follow-up. And the first thing he says to me is doc, I lost 14 pounds. <laughs> and I said, okay, because we hadn't even talked about weight loss at that point. We were going to focus on his anxiety. And he said, I started mapping out my anxiety habit loops. And I realized that anxiety was triggering me to stress eat and that that stress eating wasn't actually making me feel less anxious, but it was making me feel guilty for eating because I know I need to lose weight. And I didn't actually get much out of it. So I just stopped doing it. So that moves from his delayed gratification of I need to go on a diet to lose weight to instant gratification of, wow, this eating isn't getting me anything. There's that negative prediction error for his brain. He went on over the course of the next year to lose over a hundred pounds. I actually just followed up with him yesterday in my clinic and he's, he's working on his second hundred pounds. He wants to lose a full 200 pounds. But what he said to me yesterday, he reminded me, he said, you know, that first hundred pounds was effortless. It didn't take me any work at all because I wasn't focusing on trying to, you know, just make it through and starve myself for the day. I was just asking myself, what am I getting from this? You know, when I'm eating out of, you know, as a way to work with my anxiety and that, that nothing response in his body where he's like, why would I do this? He got him completely disenchanted so he could do that effortlessly. So here I would say, instead of trying to, to kind of force ourselves to delay gratification, we can actually tap into the very strong learning mechanisms in our brain around reinforcement learning and find the joy in letting go, you know, letting mm. go of the old habit, but also mm. the joy in, you know, for him, it felt good not to overeat. And this for if somebody that wants to start exercising, you know, remembering what it was like the last time they exercised to kind of bring that reward value into their working memory helps them be able to get motivated to get out the door. This is what my wife does in Massachusetts in the winter when she's going out for a run, you know, it's cold, you know, it could be really, you know, really cold or icy on the roads. It, it was like, why would I want to go outside? And then she remembers last time she went for a run. Oh, it actually felt very good. Get out the door. Wow. I mean, the there's so much here. What's utterly fascinating to me about this is, is a two-part question. One, you talked about, it's not about delaying the gratification. It's about asking yourself the question in the moment and saying, what am I actually getting from this? So that's super clear. I definitely understand that. The part that's mysterious for me is then, why would we practice delayed gratification? In other words, creating a reward uh, volume or however you had determined it, the, the payoff that's in the future, the excitement, the longing, the natural, I guess you could say emotional and uh, brain-based rewards that we're getting from delaying the gratification. When in an addiction cycle or when in an anxiety-based human being, would it be profound or would it be powerful to, to introduce some type of delayed gratification? 
It's a good question. I'm not sure I know the answer to that because most of the research out there, you know, if you look at cognitive neuroscience, there's no real evidence for willpower, for example. Most of our what we attribute to willpower is probably coming from tapping into reward-based mechanisms. So, for example, people who you know don't stock their house with ice cream, you know, makes sense. That could be a delayed gratification thing if they're trying not to eat ice cream. Yet those tend to be the folks that have good habits in the first place. It's easy for them to set good habits. So there may be more of a genetic. A predisposition for them to be able to do that more than others, and I, I think that's absolutely true. There are some people who have, you know, Spock-like brains. <laughs> you know, yes, where they 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 can, people. yeah, they're just like, oh, stop being anxious. But th- this is like the one percent, you know, in terms of cognitive, mm-hmm. um, you know, this think is of the it as cognitive privilege. This yeah. is the Gretchen yeah. Rubens. They're just they just uphold no matter what. Yeah, yeah and they're like. Duh. And why can't anybody else do that? So for, you know, it's great for that very small group of people, but for the rest of us, it's just not how our brains work. Okay. It's clear because there's so much of a metaphysical aspect to this. And this is really uh, the exciting part of the conversation for me, this metaphysical, uh, the physiological connection to addiction and anxiety. That's fine. Um, That's one of your specialties. And there's so much information we're going to link in the show notes right here below this video, but metaphysically Judd, what is your metaphysical stance on addiction and anxiety? How do you make sense of that both in clinical setting and in just your own personal life? Yeah, this is where I think the reinforcement learning piece has kind of hit true, both in terms of what I've been researching, but also in terms of what I see with my clinic patients and also in my personal life. And this, you know, this reinforcement learning model was put forward by the Buddhist psychologist 2,500 years ago. So it's not a new model. It was kind of rediscovered in modern day. You know, Eric Gandel gets the Nobel Prize showing that it's conserved back to the sea slug. So I think that's the most consistent model that's, that really fits with addiction. You know, you need three elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a reward from a, from a brain perspective. So I, I'm not sure that there's anything that's had more explanatory power than that. And honestly, you know, this is also where Occam's razor comes in, you know, parsimony, where the simplest answer is usually the right one. Mm. (laughs) And our brains, if you look at our brains, they're set up for simplicity in the sense of how can I be efficient at doing a bunch of different things using the same type of thing. And that's where this reinforcement learning has been shown over and over to be pretty consistent. The, um, the universal truth versus like a subjective truth, you know, we, we, a lot of work in mindfulness, they talk about, and I'm sure you have too, is there's an objective view of what's occurring. And then there's a subjective view. So subjective Mm -hmm. is like, Hey, I'm Josh in a body talking to Judd in a body, but also there's a hell of a lot more going on than just you and I in meat suits talking to each other, having auditory cues processed through our brain and then go down into our efferent, afferent nerves. So from that angle, how do you define Mm -hmm. that in your life? How do you connect with that? Maybe it's a higher power. Maybe it's God. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm genuinely curious how you see that. Yeah. I think there are two layers to this. And I'm also uh, married to a religious studies professor who, who's a, you know, she and I started dating. You've talked about this before. Yeah, our argument was, you know, God versus awareness. So, Mm. so this is something that that I think is a really interesting question. And in that sense, I think there are two layers. So one is this subjective bias, let's put it in scientific terms. So subjective bias, just and you know, this, but just for your audience, just means we, we walk through the world wearing certain glasses, you know, this is where the rosy colored versus the dark colored glasses comes in. Somebody who's depressed is, is, you know, stereotyped is, you know, seeing the world through dark colored glasses. (laughs) You've got your orange. Right. I have my blue blocking glasses. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Uh So we, we walk every we learn introduces some type of subjective bias, right? So it's, you know, that reward mechanism where if we learn that cake tastes better than broccoli, unknowing and as an efficiency mechanism, we wear those cake glasses or it's like dark chocolate glasses. And I I have all sorts of glasses, you know, it's like 70% versus 85 versus low cayenne or sea salt or whatever, right? So we're all wearing those glasses. That's the subjective bias. That's that, you know, person-centered view here. In terms of this larger view or absolute reality or whatever you want to call it, 
that's when we take those glasses off and we start to see through our own illusions of this permanent, stable self, this is Judd, and start seeing it as, oh, this is Judd meat suit, you know, and not taking, not taking Judd so personally. Does that make sense? It makes beautiful sense. But there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of confrontation that one must go through in order to get to that place because to deny that we are um, a soul in a body or however you might put it, I'm curious how you might put it, is really triggering to the ego because if we're going to grow, if we're going to transcend addiction, if we're going to um, really not allow um, anxiety or depression to rule us anymore, there has to be a self-love mechanism that's activated. And I don't always know, I don't always know if it's purely scientific. Well, I can add a little science and you can keep it. I think this is something to be, I will certainly be exploring my whole life. And I, you know, you and I can explore this together our whole lives. Yes. Uh, there is a little, so my lab ran a study with several hundred people looking to see what mind states are more rewarding. And this might sound like a no brainer, but we ran the study to see if it was actually true across a large population. So basically we gave people 14 different uh, options and said, you know, tell me how basically line them up and how, what you'd prefer to have. So setting up their reward hierarchy, things like uh, anxiety, anger, frustration, uh, and then uh, joy, curiosity, connection, things like that. And of course, and I've already laid them out for you in terms of the reward hierarchy, you know, the like anxiety, anger, things like that are universally reported as less rewarding than these other ones. And we also asked a question about how contracted or closed down people felt with each one versus how opened up or expanded they felt with each one. Okay. Universally, except for one of our, our of our um, mind states, people reported, you know, closed versus open. And so the contracted, uh, closed down, wound up feeling of anxiety, restlessness, worry, things like that, universal, you know, closed down versus joy, curiosity, connection, all open. Craving in our, in our standard sample in the cross, you know, just uh, whatever normal individuals are, was bimodal, meaning li literally half the people said that it felt closed and half the people said it felt open. And from that, our hypothesis was that, well, the people that said it was felt open was that they're focusing on getting the object of their craving. So we did a second study with expert meditators and we asked them the you know, same questions. And then with craving, it collapsed into a single, uh, single answer. W what would you guess? Closed or opened? Closed. Yeah, absolutely. Across yeah. the board. Yeah. Because the feeling of craving that, that contracted restless drive sure. is actually there as a survival mechanism to motivate us to go get something right and in fact we can even see it in our own eyes when we're craving something our eyes are narrowed when we're angry our eyes are narrowed we you probably know the somatic memory right we associate these narrowed eyes with uh, like going and getting something and there, there was a study at university of toronto where they actually looked at this they hypothesized that when people open their eyes really wide, they're in information gathering mode. Mm. And that happens with curiosity. It also happens with fear. <laughs> but uh, curiosity, we're opening our eyes really wide. Whereas with anger, we already know what we want to do. We want to go after the object of our anger. Yes. Right? Or when we're craving, we're like, oh, I got to go get that. Go get, got to go get that cake or the chocolate right now. And so we, we even can see this readout in our everyday experience with our eyes or just the feeling of closed downness or the, the contraction that comes with it. Doing the cold plunge and cold thermogenesis is fast becoming the number one way to increase your health and metabolism, which directly leads to weight loss. Let's hear from Ryan Dewey, the CEO and co-founder of Plunge to learn more. At this point, you've probably heard about cold plunging somewhere on the internet and wondering what all the hype is about. Well, here at Plunge, we like to take all the stress out of the problem by providing at-home cold plunge units that provide crystal clear cold water on demand. As opposed to lugging ice and getting that trough in place and dealing with dirty water, the Plunge provides it always in there ready for you. Cold plunging is one of the greatest ROI tools that's out there. Two to three minutes every single day and you get the increased dopamine levels, a more resilient immune system, 
a regulated nervous system, and ultimately just a more calm, peaceful outlook on life. We truly believe that when you take the plunge, you change your life. We'd love for you to check us out and see what the cold plunge is all about. Save $150 off your brand new plunge, plus get free shipping right to your home by heading over to joshtrent.com forward slash plunge. Use the code wellnessforce. This is hands down my top daily biohack for longevity, inner peace, and mitochondrial health. Don't miss out on this special limited time deal. Head over to joshtrend.com forward slash plunge. Use the code wellnessforce. Save $150 off your brand new plunge and a super special deal of free shipping. I'm interested in this because there's so much, I guess you could say, contraction and expansion depending on whatever people are viewing. Like we talked about earlier, the the use of Instagram. And I've even noticed this myself. Sometimes I'll get off of Instagram and I'm like, what the hell did I just do? You know, I just spent 15 minutes scrolling, looking at the feed posts. There's got to be a way to block that little search, uh, you know, the little magnifying glass where you just scroll through stuff. And then I'm like, well, sometimes I want to give myself a treat. But one thing that came up for me, and I'm really curious how you feel about this, is um, it was actually from the holistic psychologist who's someone Mm -hmm. I'm going to have on the show. And she said adults addicted to their own stress hormones were once children who lived in unpredictable environments of overreaction, rage spirals in fear. And I'm just like, okay, I'm a recovering addict to stress. Like even still being an entrepreneur and and navigating my life and all the things that we're creating here in Austin. um, What kind of guidance, initial guidance, not not total clinical guidance, what kind Mm -hmm. of initial guidance could you give to someone who is first uh, aware that they're addicted to their own stress? And then secondly, how do they even begin to unwind that? Because really it's an anxiety, right? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, I think stress and anxiety are very much overlapping. You know, stress tends to have clear precipitants that you can then alleviate and then the stress goes away, whereas anxiety tends to just pop up and stick around, <laughs> you know? yeah. especially for folks with like generalized anxiety disorder. So here, I think of this as, you know, what I would say is that awareness is the first step. And the second step is we we learn to habituate to become familiar with, not necessarily comfortable with, but familiar with stress and anxiety. So if we're not anxious, that might feel unfamiliar. And actually you're hitting on all these things that my patient, so I'm going to bring this patient back in because in one of our clinic visits, so his anxiety dropped tremendously. He's basically says, "I, I have very little anxiety now. When he was first getting into that place where he didn't have anxiety, It was really strange to him. And he got literally, he described this as I'm anxious that I'm not anxious because it was, he was feeling peace and calm. And he came into my office and he said, this is so weird. And it felt so weird to me that I got anxious. I thought there was something wrong. And so he had actually grown up in a house where his dad had, you know, would hit him occasionally, you know, like randomly, basically. So he started getting anxious at the age of 10 and over the next 30 years had basically lived that anxiety his whole life. So he didn't know what it was like not to be anxious when he started getting less anxious and then having being anxiety free. He actually had to get used to that until that became his new habit. So that's the first thing I would say is. You know, this, and this goes back to Carol Dweck's work around fixed versus growth mindset. You know, when we're comfortable, even in an, un, in a not healthy place, this is where uh, abusive relationships often, you know, people stay there because it's comfortable. Uh, when you move out of that, you can either move into your panic zone where you're like, oh, this is too scary. This is too different. Or you can move into your growth zone where you can move from, oh no, to, oh, this is different. What is this? And not automatically assume that it's a danger. So we obviously want to check for danger to make sure there's no bus bearing down on us or whatever. But as soon as we can keep our awareness open and see, oh, this is just different. That's why my brain is on high alert. Then we become familiar with the unfamiliar and that growth zone becomes our new comfort zone and we can become comfort comfortable with that. And the, the extreme of that is uh, just, you know, being comfortable or, you know, being comfortable with the discomfort or even, you know, being um, knowing that uh, certainty, the only certainty there is, is uncertainty and being comfortable with that, you know, leaning into that. 
Judd, just huge, huge mic drop moment. Like, <laughs> this is why I love podcasting to have organic uh, breakthroughs for myself with people like you on the show. And, you know, you're, you're in the high echelon ranks of people in this, I guess you could say, addiction and clinical psychology world. Yet you, this is what I love most about you. You have this way to meet people where they are. And in your industry, that is not always uh, the thing. <laughs> a lot of people, they're very academic minded and they, I think one of the beautiful ways that a psychiatrist or a psychologist can really connect with their patient in a clinical setting is by just being a human. What you just said, when you talked about the unfamiliar, where usually the stress is the familiar. And when somebody who's been wired for stress gets into that space where there's no stress and it's peace, and that actually triggers peace, triggers someone's anxiety. Wow. How many people can relate to this? please message us on Instagram right now. Also, we're talking about this book, this very powerful book, and it's Unwinding Anxiety. We have to learn how to untie the knot. You know, if you mm -hmm. take a knot, you just try to pull it, it's just going to tie tighter. So, so profound. And I'm really feeling this for my own life, honestly, kind of a vulnerable moment, but I'll just say that like, yeah, things have been really, really good business and money and, and my partner, Carrie and our child and everything's good. And there's a part of my mind that's like, well, wait for the, your, wait for the shoe to drop. Something yeah. bad's going to happen, whatever yeah. it is. Where does that come from? I know my story is a fragment of millions of people's story out there listening and watching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I can't imagine anybody not being able to, to relate to it's like, well, it's going well now, but there's gotta be something you yeah. know, bad. What that's else gonna is going to happen? happen? <laughs> yeah. What is that? What's the mechanism of that? Yeah. I, I don't know, you know, the exact mechanism, but I can give you some BS, some baseless speculation. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, but not bullshit. It's real. It's real. <laughs> yeah. So here's, here's my baseless speculation on that. If we, if we wait long enough, you know, and we think things are going well, things are going well, things are going well. If we just wait long enough, something's going to go less well than it's going right now. Mm. And so we can always prove our hypothesis that like eventually something's going to go wrong. So here I would say it's how we look at our life. So in these moments where we're just waiting for that shoe to drop, you yes. know, I think of, of inevitably life changes, right? Things are constantly changing. We have no control over the future. And so that, that feeling of uh, shoes going to drop may just sometimes worry is just uh, described as a, a, a way to help us feel like we're in control. Cause at least we're doing something by worrying, you know, it's ah, like it's a things are mechanism. going well. Yeah. So I'm going to worry about this and maybe that worry will help, which it doesn't, it actually mm. makes our brain work less well, but here I, I, and I do this with my, my patients and also with the folks in our programs is I try to help them see anything that is different than like perfect, you know, or going really well as a learning experience, can you bow to this experience as your teacher? So for example, folks in our unwinding anxiety program, they say, well, my anxiety is going, you know, it's dropped a lot and then suddenly it came back up. And so there must be something wrong because they're expecting it to be gone forever. <laughs> you know. And so they come in and I say, well, what did you, what can you learn from that? Like when you, when that anxiety came back up, did you start worrying again? Did you whatever? Or my patients who struggle with, you know, drinking and they're, they're uh, sober for a while and then they drink again. I say, well, what can you learn from that? Can you bow to that as a teacher? Yeah. And uh, honestly, for me, I'd love to hear what your experience is. I learn more from falling in my face <laughs> than I do from things going well. And so if I, if I lean into those quote unquote hardships and say, oh, here's a learning experience, it actually becomes rewarding in the sense that like, I just learned something. I just grew from this. I became more resilient, stronger. Mm. And then in that sense, there's no such thing as two steps backwards, one step forward, or whatever that saying is. Every step leads us forward as long as we can learn from it. You are breaking the mold on so many of kind of the woo-woo teachings out there where mm. we, we see these, M Michael Pollan calls them platitudes. We see these platitudes in social media. It's like, love is all there is. Well, it's true. Love is all there is, but um, it's not a light switch that you flick. It's not that simple. Um, and so when it comes to like the real science of this, because I, I love your emotional intelligence perspective, because yeah, like if we can just literally change the lens and say, hmm, how is this actually in, in, a, in a moment of awareness? How is this actually serving me or what can I learn from this? 
obviously through the breath, which is what we talk about in our breathe breath and wellness program, you know, thousands of people have been doing our program this year. And so I think about the power of just taking a simple breath, just to tune in with your system. You know, it's so simple yet it can be so challenging for us in that moment because we're in a, we're in a sea, we're in a cascade of hormones that are, that are driving our behavioral programs. But, but from a scientific perspective, I'd love to dig in a little bit on the stressful components in the brain, the default, the default mode network, um, the reticular activating system. Can you just give us a high level overview of when we are experiencing stress, Mm -hmm. what is actually occurring? And I think that'll help everybody with their awareness and their mindfulness. Yes. And so the, you know, for example, when there's stress, uh, the, that fight or flight response happens. And then we get, you know, and you probably have described this on your show before, but just as a refresher for folks, you know, we get this sympathetic response where our blood vessels contract so that we, you know, uh, and our heart p- pumps faster so we can get blood to our muscles as compared to pulling blood from our stomach and all that. So that's a, a large uh, part has to do with hormones because those hormones can get across our entire body to set things into play. And that starts in the brain, you know, with the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, right? So starts in the hypothalamus, pituitary, you know, sends all these these hormones like the ACTH coming uh, down into the adrenals that then sets off cortisol and things like that. Okay. So from that, we get this physiologic response. It's really important, I think, for folks to realize that that physiologic response is not, it's a physiologic stress response but we actually get stress on top of the stress response. So the stress response happens faster than our thinking brain can process, which is good because, you know, if I step out into the street and I look at the bus, I'm like, hmm, is that a bus? Is that driving really fast? Is that gonna hit me? Splat, you know, I'm dead, that's it. So it's about me stepping out in the street, jumping back, and then afterwards realizing, oh crap, I didn't look both ways. I was stuck on Instagram again or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And and so we learn from that when that stress response comes in and helps us learn. Now, my brain studies the default mode network, as you mentioned, and that network is uh, described as a self-referential network. And one of the hypotheses is, a hypothesis out there, is that this network helps us kind of sync up us with action, you know, me doing something because, and we could get into philosophical arguments about, you know, the absence of self, Sure, but, sure. but there are some pretty interesting uh, experiments decades old now suggesting the conscious awareness comes sometimes a full half a second after our motor action to do something. Okay. So, so our brain needs something to sync up a sense of self with doing something so that it's not just some, you know, meat suit walking around as an automaton. We can, we rock around and say, I'm the automaton, you know, I'm the, I'm the person doing stuff. So that default mode network uh, seems to be involved there. And in particular, there's a part of the default mode network called the posterior cingulate cortex, which my lab has done a bunch of work with. We first uh, discovered that this network gets really quiet in experienced meditators. And then we started doing some neurophenomenologic work where we could link up their subjective experience with their brain activity. And we found that the thing that correlated most with uh, the posterior cingulate was contraction in that felt experience of contraction that you and I talked about before. That correlates with increased activity in the posterior cingulate. And that feeling of expansion corresponds or correlates with a decreased activity. And this is very consistent with a lot of the work that's been done like at the University of College London, uh, Robin Carhart-Harris and others with uh, psychedelics where they um, injected the psilocybin, which is the active ingredient of magic mushrooms into people study their brain activity, their default mode network gets really quiet. And literally these are called mind expanding drugs because there's this feeling of expansion to the point where this sense of self, that boundary between self and other, it dissolves. So you think you can think of that contraction as giving us a sense of here I am, I'm the one being anxious, but it's that contraction that lets us know that's us being contracted. Whereas when we expand that, and this can happen from love, for example, when we feel loved, feels expanding, doesn't it? And my lab's done studies with loving kindness meditation showing just that the default mode network gets quiet when people are are practicing kindness, same thing with connection. We literally, we start to merge with the other for truly in a deep conversation with somebody, right? When we're and Mihai Csikszentmihalyi talks about flow, that loss of sense of self, when we're just merged, you know, action and outcome are merged. 
meaning you know this there is no self in the environment there's just everything happening and awareness of it happening so i i that was a lot uh, but uh, does that get at what you're asking it, it gets at it and i'm sure we could do literally judd an entire podcast on just the default mode network and our frontal cortex and our amygdala and our and our pfc and all these things I, I just feel like so many people out there have been getting like these bursts of ahas watching us and listening um, for just guidance to where we really are. I think the math is now almost 100 million Americans are either bankrupt or they've lost all their savings. Like financial stressor is a big one. It is yeah. a big one. And, and honestly, I think it's one of the biggest wounds in our collective society that's in the process of being healed by um, cryptocurrency and things like this. That's why they're coming up. But the practical strategies for people to use um, in this climate, this literally fire and brimstone is what it feels like. I mean, we're in like a it almost feels like a biblical time in some way. Do you feel this? And, and can you go through at least some of the practical strategies for people to navigate this this rough ocean? Yeah, I absolutely uh, relate to what you're talking about. And I think this feeling of uncertainty, you know, and I'm glad you talk on talk about the the financial stress because, you know, the people that are doing fine, they point to the stock market and they say, what, what financial stress? Sure. And then everybody sure. else points to the fact that they don't have a job or that they're underemployed or that they're working three different jobs to try to just you know, make ends meet. Or they're forced to close their business. Yeah. Yeah, right. all, all, all these I mean, business, like these um, these restaurateurs who didn't know that this thing was going to go on. So they just pour their life savings in and they're like, if I can make it one more month, one more month. They're done. Now they're all going bankrupt, you know, so all of this. So here I would say one pragmatic aspect is to separate out the worry from the thinking, right? So remember, fear plus uncertainty equals anxiety. Well, uncertainty also can move us into a growth mindset. So when, when there's a lot of uncertainty and we're really feeling you know, down on our luck or, or you know, really stressed out because of our finances, in those moments when we're really worrying, worrying, worrying about the finances, if folks can just take a deep breath, like you talked about earlier, step back and ask themselves, is this worrying helping? I'm going to repeat that is this worrying helping me right now? Okay. Because worry makes our thinking brain go offline. What do we need to go and find the next thing? If we, you know, if we're unemployed or underemployed or whatever, we need our thinking brain. What do we need to do in today's age? We need to be able to think beyond our narrow sense of what we used to do because the world has changed a lot. It has had this seismic shift that's never going to go back. And we don't even know what that's going to look like. So here we can ask ourselves, what am I getting from worrying? See if we can step out of the worry and lean into that challenge. I'm not saying this is easy, but I'm saying this is what we can do, right? Lean into this and say, okay, how can I move into my growth mindset and say, okay, what is available? What's, what's possible for me here now? And it's a simple question, but the answer may not be easy because there's so many people that are experiencing all of our stuff. I mean, let's be honest, all of our shit's coming up right now. Okay. Anytime mm -hmm. we are squeezed, all of our broken pieces, stuff we haven't dealt with, maybe familial patterns, generational trauma, capital T, lowercase t trauma, everything that we've been kind of not looking at for lack of a better term is going to surface when we are squeezed. And so I think it's really beautiful. I know it sounds crazy and people might be watching and listening and being like, what do you mean it's beautiful? Like I'm losing my home or I'm losing this. I feel you. I understand. I've been there. I've, I've cried on a golf course at uh, two in the morning uh, before I started this podcast six years ago. I get it. Um, but what I'm trying to say is, and what I'm curious how you feel is, how do we look at this as a collective gift? Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's torment. There's a lot of things that are just completely out of our control. Mm -hmm. But for the everyday human being that maybe doesn't have their financial future planned and they're in that space, how do they turn, take a breath and look, look at it and say, all right, I'm going to pick out the things that I actually can control and I'm going to do something in my life that's meaningful to myself and my family, regardless of the trauma and the circumstance. So I think there are two things there. One is to maybe three. One is to start by grounding ourselves, right? You know, so that we can actually think. 
if we're freaked out, we can't force ourselves to look at this as a gift. It might feel like we're failing even more. Like, I can't even think of this as a gift. Josh says to do this and I can't do this. You know? <laughs> so, so it's not about forcing ourselves to see things in a certain way. You know, this is, I think mm. sometimes positive psychology gets a bad rap because it's, you know, they think of it as just think positive thoughts, you know, and there's the, there's the one liner on positive psychology. You can't just think positive thoughts. It doesn't work that way. Our reward systems don't work that way because yeah. uh, they don't land. They don't, they're not felt. You can think of it as our thinking brain doesn't hold a candle to our feeling body. It's really that if, if we can, bringing up that feeling, that's what's going to drive the change in behavior. So first thing is grounding ourselves. The second thing is really uh, kind of rubbing our gently, kindly, compassionately rubbing our faces in our, you know, our worry, for example, if we're worrying all the time, asking that question, when am I getting from this so that we become disenchanted with the worry, so that we're, you know, we see, well, that's not helping me. And it helps us not spend time there. The third thing is, and I talk about this a little bit in my book is finding that bigger, better offer. So finding small moments throughout the day where there is something where we're a little more open, we're a little more connected. Somebody has been kind to us. Uh, we've been kind to somebody else. And just remembering those things, this is where there's a lot of research on gratitude practice. You know, remembering those things helps us move in the open direction. And so here I would say anything that helps us open so kindness and curiosity are my two favorites, right? Anything that helps us open helps us see what we have right in front of us as a gift. You know, this, this amazing thing of being human, <laughs> you know, it's, it's mind blowing just to contemplate it when we're in the right mindset. So this is about being open to that piece and helping ourselves open by fostering curiosity, fostering kindness. And I actually put a short, uh, I think my favorite two minute animation out on YouTube is about um, spreading, you know, kindness, kindness can be spread as more of a contagion than a physical virus, you know, because you yeah. don't have to be near somebody you can spread through social contagion, where it could be a tweet, it could be a text, it could be on Instagram, it could be whatever. And when we tap into that power of kindness, what it feels like when somebody's kind to us, this is the pay it forward piece. We're inspired to, to help others, but we have to see that cause and effect relationship. We have to see how good it feels to receive the kindness of others and also to be kind to others genuinely, not like in a, in a, you know, uh, sure. a, a way where we're expecting something in return. Yeah. The big breath and the big lesson that I've, I've gotten, and I know so many people have gotten in, in witnessing this amazing dialogue is peacefulness is a skill being peaceful practicing kindness, having the spacious awareness to even be curious about something or practice kindness takes a radical skill set and really an unwavering commitment to being your best loving self. And people could say that we're sitting around a fire singing Kumbaya. No, I'm, I'm talking no. about like real practical everyday living that is going to allow us to live our lives well. And I think you've done an incredible job with your work. I, I loved our last show. This one was just the same. Unwinding Anxiety is the book. We covered a lot of ground, Judd. What did we miss? You know, What can you leave people with, with this book and everything that you're creating here for us in 2021? Uh, the, I guess the one thing I would say is don't discount the power of curiosity. You know, I think of curiosity as a superpower. And so, you know, and I love this quote, I think it's uh, James Stevens who said, curiosity will conquer fear even more than bravery will. So I would say, find your inner child uh, for everyone, <laughs> everyone watching and listening. Oh, man. And uh, as we say goodbye, you know, this nexus that we all operate from, uh, as we talked about before, you're Judd the soul. The ego inside of a physical meat suit with a meat radio brain. So am I. I'm Josh with my own unique aspects. But in the middle of all this, like our mental, our physical, our emotional, our spiritual, they all connect and there's wellness in the middle. You know, we have to be, there's no other way around it. We have to be connected to all these aspects of self in order to truly navigate sometimes the craziness of this world and keep being a curious human. How would you define this now? You know, with all your work that you've done and, and especially with unwinding anxiety, how does Judd see wellness? What is your definition of wellness and living your life well? Wow, what a great question. You know, honestly, I would say 
wellness is being constantly curious and kind because I'm not sure what else we need. I'm just trying to think what else is needed. <laughs> I mean, besides the, you know, food and water and whatever, but from a psychological perspective, curiosity and kindness, full stop. Mike Drop, the book again, Unwinding Anxiety. Judd, thank you for coming on the show. Deep bow to you and your work and just how you're serving continuously. You obviously have a deep connection to your curiosity. Otherwise, these books would not uh, be coming. So thank you again for coming on the show and just super appreciate you. Oh, thanks for having me. This has been really fun. So until Judd and I see you again, we're both wishing you love and wellness. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I appreciate you being here so much. You know, time is our most valuable resource. It's something we can never get back. And the fact that you spend your time, your breath, your presence, your mind, your heart, your body, your soul here with me on the podcast, I am so grateful. I want to give you a free gift. Head over to joshtrent.com forward slash M21. This is where I've taken these 500 episodes and I've squeezed down to get just the juice, the most important nuggets the things that'll move the needle for you in your life right now, maybe you're needing a wellness reset or a reboot. These are six science back practices that I promise you from my research and my application will help you go from A to B, the person you are now to the person that you desire to be, the one that is fulfilling their potential. joshtrent.com forward slash M21. One of the practices in the M21 is breath work. This is a guide that in 21 minutes a day, you can take these six foundational wellness practices backed by science. And in 21 minutes a day, you can completely revolutionize the way that you feel in your body, the way that your mind speaks to you, and the way that your heart operates as a guidepost in the world. Now, back to breath work. If you've been wanting to use your breath to clear your stress, if you've been curious about how to use breath work in a practical way, I want to invite you to join us in the three week journey over at breathwork.io. This is the Breathe Breath and Wellness program where I can personally guide you one on one to get the fundamentals about the posture, the process, and the application of using breath that you're already doing just in the most beautiful way to clear your stress. Breathwork.io. Use the code Josh25. Josh25 gets you 25% off the entire three week journey. Come join me. Breathwork.io. I'll see you there.